The following is a message from Charles Telfer at Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474, wscal.edu or call 760-480-8474. Let's turn our hearts together in prayer. Gracious and merciful, almighty God and heavenly Father, we do bless you and thank you for your gift of this one, this magnificent Savior, now enthroned in glory, our Lord and our God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would take our cold, our calloused, our often um, hardened worldly hearts, and we ask that you would take off those calluses. We ask that you would soften our hearts. We pray, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Cause us to admire and to rejoice in our Savior and all the privileges that we have in him, we pray. Bless us as we continue to think about him, as we continue to lift up his name and meditate on your word together. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's turn in God's word together, shall we, to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to read the chapter as a whole. 2 Peter chapter 1, hear God's word, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly divides myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor 
and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, thus far in God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and exposition. Dearly beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have in front of us a rich feast of God's word. We have, as it were, a concerto in front of us, and we only have time to explore a few of the beautiful strains uh, here. But let me ask three questions of the passage, and the first one that I'd like for you to ask with me is, what is Peter expecting? What is Peter expecting? If you look at verse 13, he says there, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this, this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. If you're looking at your Greek Bibles, you will have noticed that the word there for departure is the word exodus. Exodus. Ex-hadas. The way out. In a few moments, the way out for you will be those doors. That is the exodus. And he's looking forward to a departure. Peter, of course, is an old man when he's writing at this point, and he's speaking about his way out, his exodus from this present life. Now, if you are still in your 20s, you may think that, or you're tempted to think at least, that you'll never make that exodus that he made, right? But it is an unavoidable fact that each of us here will make that exodus. We will leave this present life. He says in verse 14 that he will put off his body, and so must you. You must put off your body uh, at some point in time. There seems to be death all around us at this time. Just last week, there was a, uh, we had uh, um, uh, a number of deaths here in our, in, in our uh, extended community. Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed to man to die once, and then comes the judgment. But it's precisely at here here when we talk about death and departure, that we see the great difference that it makes to be, uh, to be a Christian, to have Jesus as our only comfort in life and in death. In verse 14, when uh, Peter talks about putting off his, this present life, he talks about putting off this tent. He's using that image of, <clears throat> of a wilderness wandering, as it were. Our, his forebears and our forefathers in the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they lived in the promised land, living in tents, as a camping experience, as it were. They were continually moving about. And Peter is using that image and saying that, I'm almost finished with this particular stay along the way, but soon I'll have to pick up stakes and move along. I'm going to make an exodus. But then look at verse 11. In verse 11, he uses the opposite term. He doesn't use exodus, he uses isodus. Right? Isodus. Eishodos, the way in, the entrance an in-going, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I must confess, it was these words that partly drew my attention to this text when we were told we were supposed to uh, pick uh, something along, an Exodus theme, and I saw this, literally this word, this word used as Exodus, and these two words played out here in this beautiful passage. I realize I'm breaking a number of rules. There's a major division between 11 and 12. If you were properly to expound this, uh, we would have to recognize that. And there's a number of other themes that we'll have to leave untouched. But be that as it may, Peter speaks about an exodus, and he speaks about an isodus, an entrance into something better and more uh, permanent. Now, how can Peter have this confidence? How can he be uh, confident of uh, something that's even more glorious in his future? Is it on the basis of his own achievements? Is it on the basis of his having lived such a good life? And the answer, of course, is no. Look at verse 2. Our relationship starts by, with, uh, with God's grace. Our relationship starts, verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who justifies us. It's his righteousness, not our own, that sets us well in our relationship with God. And we need to be reminded of this, don't we, at least weekly, if not daily, if not hourly. And look at uh, the little phrase at the end of verse 3. He speaks about there, his divine power. Notice, his divine power, not your efforts. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent. excellence. Right? It's the emphasis is on him. But notice that last little phrase. It's a dative phrase. We can take it two ways. The ESV takes it in a locative sense. He's called us to glory, to excellence, unto excellence. And this is certainly true. Right? What a glorious truth that is. We're called to glory. But the NIV, the NASB, a number of other translations, take this in an instrumental way. This is a dative of means, right? How is it that we uh, come into uh, such, a, such a secure relationship with God? It's by his own glory. It's by his goodness. It's by his arete. It's by his excellence, right? The emphasis on what he's doing, right? It is, it is his goodness. It is his uh, virtue. This is that great, that, great, uh, ver that great quality, that excellence that the Greeks love to talk about, the virtue, the excellence that we stand secure in our relationship with, with, uh, with God. We have Christ who, by his own virtue and performance, and by his suffering, the justice of God for our lack of performance, that's what puts us in a secure position uh, and a good standing with God. Alfred Lord Tennyson was a great poet. Of that, there's no doubt. But he was not a Christian. And so when he talks about his own exodus, he talks about a... Uh, a departure. The ship takes off, it leaves port, and it just kind of goes off into the nowhere. He has no confidence of where he's going to end up. That's quite different from the poet Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley is looking not only at an exodus, but at an isodus. He's, he's looking for the ship to make port, as he puts it. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O oh my Savior, hide till the storm of life is passed, safe into the haven guide. He's looking for that haven, right? Safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. What is Peter expecting? 
What was Wesley expecting? What are you expecting? Glory. Glory. Right? A glorious entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But let's ask a second question of our passage here. And that is, that why should you expect glory? Why should you believe this? Why should you expect glory? How can you have confidence that you're looking forward to something better? Yes, we have experiences of glory this side uh, of the grave, yes, but, but how can we then have confidence that beyond the grave, beyond the end of all earthly hopes, that we're looking forward to this uh, uh, unspeakably good experience, each of us who are connected to Christ? Um, and Peter draws our attention then uh, in the uh, last part of this passage to uh, two reasons in particular why we can have that confidence. First, he says, because I've seen it. He says, I've witnessed it. You can trust me because I'm an eyewitness. Look at verse 16. He says, your Christian hope is no wishful thinking, but I've seen it and it is no myth. Now, if you had to choose one figure who was probably the most widely revered New Testament scholar in the 20th century, who might you choose? You might probably choose Rudolf Bultmann right, with his program of demythologization. To take away the myth almost reminds me of uh, something like Thomas Jefferson with his, with his razor on life of Jesus, right? But this demythologization, what a, what a massive influence this man uh, had on the churches in the West. But now as we move into the 21st century, now it's easier for many of us to see the, the modernist skepticism, the, the raw unbelief that was really behind much of that particular program of demythologization. One of his early auditors, I think it, if memory serves, I think it was Bart, heard one of his lectures and said, how does this differ from atheism? But I would venture to say that it was not Rudolf Bultmann who was the first demythologizer. I would say it was Simon Peter. What does he say there? He says in in, in verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. He says there was no, I'm not going to accept any sesophistical mythoi. Right? No, not at all. Peter gives, says, I was an eyewitness of these things. And Peter goes on to seal his testimony of these things with his own blood. That's 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 what it cost him to say this. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You should believe it, Peter says, because I saw it. I had the privilege of being there. Now, you'll remember when Moses saw the, the, the back of God, as it were, just that glimpse, Moses went down from the mountain, and what was his experience? His, his, whole, his whole body, his face was radiating some of that glory. Now, what Peter saw was not a reflection of the glory, but Peter was granted, as it were, for a moment, just a parting of the veil Peter saw not a reflection, but the glory itself 
coming from this person, this God-man. He saw this experience, I, I think, I, I sense him straining with human language in this, in this part. How is he to describe this majestic glory, holy mountain? It was an experience of the, the, the brightness of Jesus Christ being utterly overwhelming, brighter than any white, white uh, a fuller could, could make something. It's an overwhelming experience of glory. He experiences this and is uh, utterly impressed and his memory is completely fixed on this for the rest of his life. Glory is real, Peter says. You should believe it because I've experienced it. But then in Peter's humble mind, he goes on to something that's even more firm. And he, he goes on to say in verse 19, your, your faith should be on something even more sure. Believe the Old Testament scriptures, he says in verse 19 and following. These are men who spoke from God himself. Brothers and sisters, this message, this message about the forgiveness of your sins now, this message about glory for you right around the corner is absolutely trustworthy. It is absolutely certain. You have a double confidence of it. You have the testimony of the apostles with their own eyes, sealed with their blood. You have the testimony of God's spirit-moved prophets in the Old Testament. It's all pointing to the reality of these things. You have every reason to expect glory. And so let's ask a third question and a final question more briefly then. How should we respond to the coming glory? If these things are certain, then what difference does it make to us now in our efforts right here in this week? Peter reminds us. He's saying, particularly in verses 5 through 10, he's saying, stir yourself up to action. He's saying, take your, your Christian life uh, actively, not passively. There's no, there's no place for uh, kind of uh, coasting in the Christian life. As a seminarian, there's no place for coasting. There's no time to put it into neutral. There's, a, there's an activity he calls for. Look at verse 10. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Right? He's, not, he's not saying make yourself elect. Of course, that idea is absurd. But uh, grow in the confidence that God has given you grace. And part of that comes from your sanctification. Peter, look at verse 5. Can you feel the, the call to action there? He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. See, he's calling you to grow in that same word that he, he used earlier, that aritas. For the Greeks, it was Achilles, perhaps, right? To be like Achilles. But for us, it's to be like the other great victor, right? It's to be like Jesus, to be, like our Lord Jesus Christ in his virtue, in his character, right? We're to grow in aritas, in virtue, moral excellence. We're to grow in knowledge, he says. We're to grow, by implication, it seems to me, in the scholarly virtues. What a wonderful uh, idea. The scholarly virtues in, in diligence, in humility, in honesty, in fair dealing with our opponents and our sources, right? In curiosity, in patience, right? The scholarly virtues. And isn't, doesn't this text as a whole justify our efforts as a community? Look, think about verse 21. I mean, why is it that we sweat together so much over these languages? 
it's because this, this, this word, it, it comes to us from the Holy Spirit, right? It is a word from God and requires the very best and the most loving attention that we can possibly give to it, right? So there's a call to, to, to virtue of every sort, to knowledge, to grow in self-control, to grow in steadfastness, to grow in, in piety, dare I put it that way, to use the old term, right? Yes, to be pious men, pious women in the best sense, to grow in brotherly affection, right? But I wish we had more time to talk about these things, but just notice the first and the last. Where does your Christian life begin? It begins with faith. It's confidence not in yourself, but in your faithful Savior. That's where you begin. And where do you end? With love. A sincere concern for the person next to you, for the person who lives with you, for the, for the people in your life. A, a sincere concern and a growing concern for the, for the honor of God in all things, in all aspects of life. Isn't this a beautiful picture? Isn't it, is it attractive to you? Is, is this an easy life? Of course not. Does it call for self-denial? Does it call for a strain and stress as we fight against the world, flesh, and the devil? Of course it does. But there's a call to action here. And it's based on the fact that you and I are bound for glory. What difference does it make to our living now that we're bound for glory? Bound for glory. A certain thing. A certain thing. So as Peter says in closing in verse 10, he says, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.